0: escape pod 267 november 18th 2010 Fall by michael c lee hello and welcome to escape pod your weekly science fiction podcast i'm norm sherman there's one thing that you need to know about this week's story folks it's the kind of story that will make you fall in love with science fiction all over again. Actually, there are two things you need to know. The word thaumaturgy means the capability of a saint or a magician to work marvels. It kinda comes up once or twice. Anyways, that's all I'm gonna say, because as some of you will recall, if there's one standard I ever hold myself to, no matter what, one unswerving ideology that I hold sacred... It's to not dick around when giant lizards are involved. This week we bring you Planetfall by Michael C. Lee. Michael's fictions appeared in many anthologies including The Tangled Bank, The Book of Exodai, Troll Tunnels, Out of Order, and The Scroll of Anubis. He studied speculative fiction writing and screenwriting at the Gotham Writers' Workshop, and his screenplays have placed highly in prestigious competitions such as the Nickel Fellowships, Scriptapalooza, the WriteMovies.com competition, and the Filmmakers' International Screenwriting Awards. This story first appeared in the Book of Exodi in 2009 from Episodic Diversions. The story is read to you by Jason Adams of the Indie Squid Kid blog and Random Signal podcast. So, flatten your palms, swing your arms into the ready position, and prepare to carve your will into reality. Because it's story time.
1: Planet Fall by Michael C. Lee. Galthus Talisar stepped out of the buzzing chaos of the Transportal and onto lush greenery. This world was alien, to be sure, but the patterns were almost familiar. The ship's oracles had chosen well. Behind him, the Transportal hummed again. An armored leg emerged and carefully found its footing on the blue-green ferns carpeting the jungle floor. More than 20,000 miles above, the leg's owner shifted his weight and stepped fully through an identical transportal, instantly emerging onto the planet's surface below. That cautious leg belonged to Urjik, who could be called cautious in few other ways. In fact, his reputation had left him few other options for a willing partner on this mission. Urjik did not care. He and Galthus had fought together against the worst the Zayin had to offer. He trusted Galthus implicitly despite his disdain for the other scrawny ascetics from Signet Battalion. Urgic's greenish skin and jutting lower canines marked him as a charuk, his bloodline tainted by nether influences. Despite this stigma, and despite his temper, he had risen quickly in Rampart Battalion. Even the most burdensome battlesuit did not slow him, and no one was a truer shot with an Inferno cannon or a hex-impelled railgun. Galthus, by contrast, had the pale skin and slight build of a fey-touched. Unarmored and with no visible weapons, he was nowhere near as physically imposing as Urgic. Those who had seen Signet Battalion in action, however, knew that his bulky cold iron armbands were weapons as formidable as any firearm or battle axe, and far more versatile. Air's a little thick, Urgic said, but it breathes. I could have told you that, Galthus replied softly. Since you insisted, I go first. Urgic flashed his tusky grin. I thought that was protocol, he said. I always follow protocol. Galthus frowned back over his shoulder at the armored charok, but said nothing. His companion was irrepressible, but Galthus had not quite recovered the use of his sense of humor yet. It was one more thing the Zayin had taken. Perhaps here, on this world, they could find themselves again. The transportal winked out behind them, the thaumaturgic sigil in its keystone deactivated from the other side. No one else would be coming through. For such a vital mission, there would ordinarily be at least a full squadron, with clockwork or golems for logistical support. Here, as on dozens of other mission sites... There were only resources for a two-man team. Which way is it? Urgic asked, looking around warily. The air was warm and humid, and buzzed with strange insects like fat blue bees. We should be within twenty meters, Galtha said. This way, I think. They moved through the brush. Galtha sliding quietly, Urgic with the subtlety of a tank. His armor servos whined as he powered through the flora and fauna alike. The cluster of large multicolored crystals jutting from the center of the armor's back glowed as the suit drew power from them. The undergrowth thinned. A clearing lay just beyond. They could feel a vibration in the air, an indefinable high energy presence, like a gathering thunderstorm. Galthus turned back. Ready? he asked. Either this is it, or this is something very bad. Urgic hefted his high-powered Vindocladian Inferno Cannon to his shoulder and aimed its sigil-carved barrel into the clearing. Inside the bulky rifle's main housing, another imp was caged, writhing in immortal fury, but jacketed securely in heavy-duty, curse-proofed lead. "'One of these days that thing's going to backfire,' Galtha said. "'And all your kids will end up with tentacles,' Urgic shrugged. "'They're already going to have tusks!' Galtha silently parted the foliage and advanced into the clearing. The source of the disturbance in the air was immediately apparent. In the center of a small field of yellow-orange flowers, a geyser of light fountained six meters into the air, too bright to look at. Galthus looked down at his armbands. The fey glyphs carved into them were shining with power. Behind him, Urgic struggled with his rifle, as if fighting recoil. The angry imp inside was soaking up energy. His armor's fuel crystals grew brighter, their flaws in occlusion shining like stars. Bespeak the ship, Galthus said, his voice heavy with emotion. Tell them the oracles were correct. Tell them we found a source well. Tell them the lights will stay on and the ships will not starve. Tell them our world is dying, but our people may yet survive. Most people on Ashtore had heard of the Zayin before they came roaring out of hyperspace bent on genocide, but few thought much about them. They were frequent trading partners, but casual visits in either direction were rare. Their world Zayid was rich in certain rare earths and metals, but the people themselves were generally regarded as physically repugnant and culturally backward. The Zayin were fanatical servants of a harsh and exacting deity, while the Ashtarians practiced a genial animism whose very formlessness offended their rigid neighbors. In order to secure a vital trade route, the Ashtarite military had established a base on Zayid, inadvertently trespassing on one of many holy lands and thus sowing the seeds of their own eventual ruin. Resentment on Zayid built over generations, until a swift and bloody coup left the crusader faction in charge. The first wave of the Holy Zayin Crusade departed for Ashtar within weeks of the coup, in terms of technology, they were completely outmatched by the asteroid military, but they brought with them a secret weapon that the asteroids could never have anticipated. The Zayin Crusaders had roused their dark god from its slumber. It flew alongside them, ringing with righteous fury, eager to descend upon the sinning asteroids. The source will, of course, came with its own complications. It seemed as if nothing would come easy ever again. Galthus and Urgic found out about the aliens immediately after bespeaking the good news back to their ship. This close to the source well, the bifurcated mimic demon in Urgic's thaumaturgic squawk box transmitted powerfully and received clearly. The mimics were bred to produce conjoined twins, and separated soon after birth. Whatever one perceived, the other repeated, no matter the distance between them. Although the little demons lived their entire lives separated, Galthus occasionally wondered if they ever longed for their missing halves. While Urgic contacted the ship, Galthus sat and meditated on the source well, feeling the fey energies dancing in his armbands. He sat at the very edge of the grassy clearing and came no closer to the well itself. Any sentient being who strayed too close would be entranced, drawn irresistibly into the source to be annihilated. The source wells were vital. They were the stuff of life itself, but they were also deadly. Urgic's heavy tread had announced his presence long before he spoke. We've got company, he said. Maybe half a click away. Galthus reluctantly left a meditation behind. Zayin? He asked, eyes still closed. No, Ergic said. Something else. Before they left, Galthus decided to conceal the source well. There was no way of knowing how the interlopers might react to it or try to exploit it. Galthus fell into a stance, spreading his feet wide. He flexed his knees and felt the earth below hold him in its grip. He flattened his palms, swung his arms into the ready position, and prepared to carve his will into reality. His hands moved, weaving glyphs into the air, leaving a shimmering trail hanging in the empty space behind. Inside the bracers clasped around his forearms, captive Fay Wildling shone brightly in response to his will. Their power flowed through a web of microtubules of cold iron, spinning through complex circuits until it emerged shaped into signs transcribed from Galthus's mind onto the face of creation. Galthus drew a point, a line, a curve, suggesting the sweep of a clock's hand. Sen XYZ becomes equal to minus 45.0892. 207.6823, 32.3342 rad becomes equal to twenty meters. Next, an oval circumscribed by a circle. Set perk becomes equal to from perk one to perk five for all perk from sen XYZ to arc sen rad three hundred sixty. Finally a mobius light closed looped curving back upon itself to establish the simple recursion. Perk becomes equal to perk plus disc. Dis, send rad, perk, next, perk. The glyphs hung in mid-air, shimmering. Galthus waved them together. They joined, overlapping, connecting in the proper places to allow power to flow through the newly defined system. Galthus thrust his hands into the glyph, vertically aligned, right over left. Power crackled through his armbands as they intersected the potent symbol. He then rotated his arms, as if turning a wheel, until his hands were horizontal. The glyph rotated with them a full quarter turn, locking into place with an impact that he could feel in the pit of his stomach. Reality's tumblers clicked one over another, and the world was changed. The source well and its clearing vanished instantly, replaced by a moor jungle. Anyone looking in the well's direction would not only fail to see it, their steps would be guided subtly around it. It would be safe from tampering or exploitation. Now, Galtha said, Let's go meet our visitors. When the astronomers first spotted it, they thought it was a mistake. It flew alongside the Zayn fleet, gliding in and out of conventional space, radioactive auroras trailing in its wake in sinister serpentine waves. When it was too consistent to be labeled a mistake, they thought it was a massive ship, a dreadnought on a scale heretofore never seen. Even that would have been much better than the truth. The truth, which they saw once the Zayan fleet reached visual range, was that it was a Volkalisk Gargantua. As far as the scientists of Astor knew, no one had ever seen one alive before. The only known specimen had been discovered near Zayad by the Asherite military garrison placed there. A subsequent joint expedition had fully explored the site to see it in its awful grandeur. The beast lay coiled around a shattered planetoid, with the crumbling remains of the world smeared around it in, as an asteroid belt. The planetoid was scarred, obviously by the creature's external assault, but it seemed to have been shot through with a network of fine holes as well. There was nothing left of the planet-sized monster but bones. They had considered it an anomaly, a unique aberration, but they had named the species nonetheless. It held the popular imagination on Astra for some time. Reconstructions, artistic speculations on what it would look like alive, and even fictional entertainment featuring their gargantua as destroyer or savior were all eagerly devoured by the captivated public. But the Zayin, the Zayin insisted it was a god. They even had their own name for it, terrifying and unpronounceable. They were rapturous at its discovery and thought the Asteroid's whimsical fascination filthy and disrespectful. The Astroites, for their part, thought the talk of god bones laughable, but never snickered too loudly or in mixed company. When the Zayin emerged from hyperspace with their scaly god behind them, sculling the solar winds with its massive crocodilian tail, the asteroids stopped laughing. They knew the Zayin worshipped the beast but never imagined that the fanatics could find or clone a live one, much less tame it. The Volklisk Gargantua tore through their defenses and blotted out the sun, hungry for the hot marrow of Ashtar. The aliens were something else indeed. Their scanners revealed that the ship was like a coffin, a lifeless box of metal hollowed out with stubby wings that imitated flying things but were not animated by any sort of life force. To Galthus and Urgic, it was like seeing a rock or a corpse that flew. The door in the ship's belly hissed open, powered by some motive force that was not immediately apparent. The thing that waddled out was tripartite. Three arms, three legs, no head to speak of, a ring of watery green eyes around its midsection, and a central mouth where its neck should be. Its flesh was gray and rubbery, with irregular patchy tufts of reddish hair. It was draped in metallic ornaments, many of which seemed permanently attached. Urgic had relegated his cannon to a shoulder mount, and now held a telescoping battle axe that had unfolded from its housing in his armor. Galtha's bracers had sported shimmering bucklers and stubby blades of fey energy. Both stood ready for battle at any sign of aggression. They had been caught unawares by the Zayin. Never again. Then the tripod thing spoke, and a box in its chest echoed its words. Galthas and Ergic both started. They were quite certain that no creature or spirit nested within the box, and a talking cube of metal was unheard of. Unfortunately, both the tripod and the box spoke gibberish. The rubbery creature pointed to the box, then to its own mouth, then to Galthus. When there was no response, it said something unintelligible and repeated the gesture. "'You think it wants us to talk?' ergic asked. "'I think so,' Galthus responded. So they talked. They spoke of war. Urgic talked of the gargantua, how it had wrapped itself around their world and sunk its teeth with the tips as broad as cities deep into Aster's hide. He talked of the destruction, and claws that rent continents asunder, of the flight into their great void-faring ships, living creatures like gigantic levitating horseshoe crabs. Galthus talked of the desperate flight to slay the Gargantua, of witnessing the deaths of hundreds of thaumaturges of Mira Battalion, who died affixing talismans to one of the impossibly huge creature's eye sockets. He talked of Rampart Battalion's heroism as its fighters, urgic among them, wielded weapons bearing talismans mated to those affixed to the Gargantua. Then they fired bolt after bolt of imp-spawned hellfire, projectile after projectile, until their power crystals had all dimmed and their ammunition was exhausted. Every shot from a thaumaturgically marked weapon curved in its path and unerringly sought its companion talisman affixed to the gargantua they spoke of the evacuation of how the trans had burned until the source wall sputtered out until the soul of aster perished in one final paroxysm as the gargantua spewed the planet's lifeblood out into the void urgic spoke fiercely of the gargantua's death throes how it locked onto Astor with its tail and all six legs as it perished curling around their world just as the ancient skeleton had been found curled around a shattered dead planetoid Galthus spoke softly of the decision to flee, of the main fleet leaving Asher to seek out another homeland, while their still battle-ready companions stayed to try to repulse the remains of the Zayn fleet. And then the alien spoke in their language, or at least its box did. "'Thanks be you for to discuss words,' the box buzzed out. "'This one prime speaker, Loban fleet.'" Galthus and Urgic looked at each other. The box was a piece of dead metal that learned languages. They had met other spacefaring racers, but this was truly alien. I am Galthus, and this is Urgic, Galthus said, of of Ashtar. Pleased are we of Loban to know you, the prime speaker said. And we? You, Galthus replied. For how long are you staying this orb? The alien asked bluntly. We are refugees, Galthus said. Our home can no longer support us. The Loban Prime Speaker paused. His large green eyes blinked several times in succession. Finally, he said, "'We welcome you as competitors in spirit of fair play.'" Urgic frowned. Galthus held up his hand to keep him silent and said, "'We hope that, in this time of loss and tragedy, we can count on the assistance and cooperation of the Loban people.'" "'We welcome all competitors who wish to contend freely,' the Prime Speaker said quickly. "'We seek a recourse.'" "'Spotted from high-altitude scan, strange light fountain, high energy, very unusual. "'Was here, but now is not. "'Seen this resource, have you?' "'He's talking about the source well, Galthus realized. "'Was it possible that these Lobans had advanced all the way to interstellar travel "'without ever encountering a source well? "'Whatever the answer, he knew that he could not risk being cut off from the well. "'His entire civilization would collapse without a usable energy source. "'This was all they had.' We've been traveling long, Galtha said. We are very tired. We must return and convey your greetings to our leaders. The Loban blinked several eyes. Maybe it was the equivalent of a nod. Then it abruptly turned and marched back into its ship. That night, they watched Astor die. They established visual communication with the ship, intending to report on their encounter with the Loban ship. But they were confronted instead with their section commander, red-faced and puffy-eyed. "I'm sorry to have to be the one to show you," he said. "I'm sorry you have to see it down there alone, but we all have to see it. We all have to watch what's going on, Urgic asked, although on some level they both already knew. Fresh tears coursed down the section commander's cheeks. Neither Galthus nor Urgic had never seen the man so emotional. He angrily wiped his face with his forearm. "'The damn thing was hermaphroditic, or asexual, or God's only knows what,' he said. "'We had everyone evacuated. We had the damn Zyene lizard troopers on the run. We were on the verge of implementing a plan to pull the big lizard off. Someday we might have been able to go back.' The section commander reached for something unseen, and the image hovering above the squawk box changed to a view of Astor, wounded but whole, the corpse of the reptilian gargantua still twined about the planet." The science boys say the eggs must have been encased in something super-dense, like neutronium, the commander's voice said. They can't figure out how any egg inside would survive that. But we know there were two of them, and they passed right through the planet's crust like it was water. When they sank all the way to the core, they fused and... The voice broke off. The image of the damaged planet spun quietly. When we realized what was happening, there were volunteers. Hundreds! Hundreds! They took all the golems and elementals and all the burrowing clockwork they could scrape together and they all went back to try to stop it. We weren't even sure Astor would ever be habitable again, but they still went back in. They could hear the section commander sobbing. On the image, something strange was happening to Astor. Volcanoes were erupting, so many and so violently that they were visible even when viewing the, the whole planet. Chunks of rock of the planet's crust spewed out into orbit and beyond. Some of the chunks kept moving. Some of them... Or something else. Creatures were bursting free of the planet's crust, miniature versions of the giant lizard whose corpse draped aster, tiny in comparison to the globe itself. They still must have been as large as cities or larger. At first, just a few, then hundreds, then thousands, burrowed free, bursting aster from within. They swooped and dove through the planet's remains, swimming through the solar currents and breathing in the quantum fog, devouring promising probabilities and exhaling death. The planet collapsed, spreading into a bloody arc. Galthas and Urgik watched all that was left of their world, everything they had ever known, every place they had ever lived, everything they had ever hoped or longed for or wondered about, every mystery unsolved and every story untold, everything that had ever defined home to them bled out into the vacuum. As the fragments cooled, the tiny Gargantua abandoned them and turned on the corpse of their mother. Always wondered what could have picked that thing down to its bones, Urgic said, his voice thick. Galthus turned to rebuke him, but held his tongue when he saw his burly companion's face. The Charak, too, was weeping openly. Numbly, they made the report and received their orders. Urgic wanted to attack the Loban ship right away, probably because he felt a deep need to strike back at something. But he had a point. The source well had to be defended. Command wanted information, however. They had quietly tagged the ship thaumaturgically so that it could be monitored from a nearby squawk box. Scouts had encountered several derelict ships in the outskirts of the system. If they were Loban ships, the Lobans might be grateful for information about them. In the end, they were told to continue negotiating, to find out as much as possible without giving any vital information about their forces. The Asterites no longer had the resources to squander potential allies, and while the temptation to inflict pain to still their own disquiet was there, High Command was determined that the remaining people of Astur would not become like the Zayin. They would trust until given a reason to distrust, and seek the good in all beings. We trusted the Zyene, Galthus thought, and see where that got us? But he accepted his orders and prepared for a long, sleepless night. The next day, the Loban prime speaker asked them bluntly about their technology. The Lobans had been monitoring them, it seemed, and regarded their equipment as strange or somehow sorcerous in nature. Galthus pretended not to understand. Our devices are based on life, on binding simple spirits to do our will, he said. The Prime Speaker blinked its eyes and fluttered its mouth a bit. "'Are there... more of you coming to this world?' Golthas asked, and immediately winced. "'Subtle,' Urjik muttered behind him. "'Of course not,' the Prime Speaker replied. "'As we said, we seek resources. This is done in competition, as it should be. Our location is secret of much seriousness.' "'So the dead ships our scouts have spotted at the edge of the system are not yours?' "'The Loban waved its arms dismissively. "'No, no, not Loban. "'Some other race whose name we do not recall. "'They are seeking resources also, quite urgently. "'But they did not know this orb was present. "'They turned to go back, make for another system. "'Apparently they failed.' "'Galthus felt something cold worm its way through his gut. "'You knew they were in urgent need of resources?' The Loban blinked. Yes, yes. We communicated with them briefly. It yielded nothing. It was of little importance. Why didn't you direct them to this planet? Galthus asked. The Loban seemed taken aback. It blinked all of its eyes at once three times. We seek resources, it said. This is done in competition. All must compete for themselves alone, or the competition is impure. These creatures are not Loban. The orb was ours, found first by us. Why would we want more competitors? After a pause, it added, Of course, now that you are here, we anticipate striving for resources with you in the spirit of fairness. Of course, Galtha said. He turned to Urgic and said, Go back to camp. Tell Command the ships they found are not Loban. Urgic looked hesitant. Go, Galthus told him, and he did. Galthus contemplated the strange, tripod-like alien. Based on their brief interaction, he could not say that they might become bloodthirsty fanatics like the Zayn. But they were incredibly indifferent, which might be just as bad. The Loban's lack of compassion for the beings it had allowed to freeze to death was chilling. It turned back to the Loban speaker. We accept your generous offer to compete for resources, he said, and in return for your magnanimity... I wish to offer you the secret of our technology. When Galthus returned to camp, Urgic was nearly beside himself. "'The Lobans!' he said. "'I pulled them up on the box. They got back in their ship and took off!' "'Did they now?' Galthus asked. Urgic pointed to the squawk box. An image of the Loban ship flying over the countryside hovered over it. "'They're headed right for the source well,' Urgic said. "'How did they find it again?' "'Probably because I turned the ward off,' Galtha said. "'Why would you?' Urgic began, but then he began to put it together and fell silent. As they watched, the Loban ship hovered closer and closer to the source well. They crossed the edge of the clearing and kept going, edging closer and closer. The nose of their shuttle clipped the edge of the column of blazing light. The source well flared and instantly engulfed the Loban ship. It turned blue-green for a moment and then returned to white, all impurities consumed.' There was no sign the Loban ship had ever existed. Apparently, they have somehow advanced this far with absolutely no knowledge of the dangers of source wells, Galtha said. Who could have imagined? Ergic stared at him, wearing a look of dawning horror. He had been in favor of attacking them openly, but not this. Bespeak the ship, Galtha said wearily. Tell them the Loban expedition met a tragic end, tell them there were no survivors. Tell them that from now on, nothing comes easy. Tell them that out here it's every man for himself. Tell them that this is our world now. Why would we want competitors?
0: No one was a truer shot with a high-powered Vindocladian Inferno cannon or a hex-impelled railgun. Well, I know what I want carved in my tombstone now. What does it mean to be a refugee? I don't mean pulling the definition off of Wikipedia like I did the word thaumaturgy. I mean being uprooted from your home, from everything in your reality, disenfranchised by some external force and displaced into the unknown, a place with strange talking boxes and fat blue bees. In 2005, people in the US living in New Orleans got a taste of what millions of people around the world experience daily. The feeling of being uprooted and placed in suspended animation. Our borders in the U.S. prevent infiltration by just about everything short of hurricanes and giant planet-eating crocodiles, but for other countries without such massive defense budgets, most of the time it just comes down to competition in the spirit of fairness. Or religious crusades, for you spiritualists out there. Or survival of the fittest, for you Darwinian naturalists. It's about resources. It's dog-eat-dog and drill-baby-drill. But we all come from somewhere, don't we? And in that, we all have one thing in common. An understanding of what it means to have a home. But I didn't ask what it means to have a home. I asked what it means to be a refugee. And how could anyone who really has the answer to that question ever post it on Wikipedia? How could any nation or any person with a home... Ever try to uproot someone else from theirs, sending them off to freeze in coffin-shaped ships that orbit blankly around them? It's a good story this week, folks. Pass it along to others. And that's cool, because Escape Pod is produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change any of it or use it for personal monetary gain. There's nothing in there about sharing it or gently shaping people's entrenched worldviews and ideologies with it. That's just Manifest Destiny. So let's go now to everyone's favorite assistant regional manager, Bill Peters, for a wee bit of story feedback.
2: Hello, faithful listener. Welcome to the feedback for episode 259 The Lady or the Tiger by J.M. McDermott and read for us by Grant Bacchio of Throwing Toasters and the Radio Adventures of Dr. Floyd. The story was based on the story of the same name by Frank R. Stockton about making a difficult binary choice, and tigers. Scattercat said, I am glad that the people already pointed out the cringeworthy misreading of the original Lady or the Tiger, which caused me to shout and gesture wildly at my computer and drown out Norm with an impromptu lecture on the thematic content and history of the original story, and then after a whine to listen to it properly. Dante's Fire said, The thing I didn't understand about McDermott's story is why he made the kid who has to decide 10 years old. Sure, he knows what evils his brother has done, and sure, he likes the girl, but unless I'm missing something, I wouldn't think most 10-year-old boys, especially seeing how chummy these two were, would automatically save their brother over a cute girl. Why didn't the author make the kid older, at least a teen, and maybe already dating the girl? Then I could see it as more of a quandary. Laws said The whole my brother is the tiger thing did rub me wrong too, like a cymbal drop in an otherwise graceful symphony. It should perhaps have been brought in a lot earlier, perhaps left out completely, so the Dolwits like me could ask, what does the title mean then? But I did like the story, which set up an interesting unbelievable world with an admirable brevity. But we could be told who he saved. That would render the story pointless like if Inception didn't end the way it did. And that's it for this week. Tune in next week for the feedback to episode 260, The Speed of Dreams.
0: Thanks, Bill. So that's our show. Remember, Escape Pod is a listener-supported podcast. We pay our authors professional rates for their awesome creative work, because by golly, awesome creative work damn well deserves it but you're our well source folks we can't do this without you you've got to go to escapepod.org and pick a way to help support us so we can make this thing mega awesome for you each week don't hesitate if you've got an internet browser in front of you right now go for it we'll be here next week for you with more of the top science fiction from today's top writers because that's what we do our music is by the kick-ass monster surf rock band Dai Kaiju, which, after having said that little plug in these outros dozens of times at this point, I finally caved in and ordered their CD. And it's awesome, folks. Seriously, I set it as my alarm clock wake-up music, because it's an awesome way to get up in the morning. I really dig them. Anyways, check them out. We'll see you next week, everybody. Our closing quotation this week comes from Ellie Wiesel, who said, Once a refugee, always a refugee.